and to give yourself permission to let it take as long as it takes. Because no one can accurately tell you, well, this, you know, by this time it's going to be better or by this time it's going to be better. Sometimes your grief is so acute. Sometimes what you've experienced is so difficult that the grief is just heavy with you for a long, long time. And that is okay too. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Dr. Fontrilla Art. Dr. Art is a passionate maternal health advocate. She came by the cafe to share her experiences of miscarriage and preeclampsia. Grab your warm drink and tune in for a great conversation. Hi, Dr. Ard. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? My name is Dr. Quantrilla Ard. Most people call me Kwani. A little bit about me is I'm a mom, a wife, an ever-evolving student of life. I love people. I love reading. I love cultivating community. Specifically, I also do lots of research on Black maternal health and how we can save our Black and brown mamas and babies and birthing people. And I also am heavily involved in ministry and faith-based community building and other things of that nature, writing and speaking all those good things. So I have several hats and I love all of them. So that's a little bit about me. Fantastic. What got you interested in maternal health outcomes? I think I've always been interested in maternal health outcomes. It probably looked a little different as my educational journey progressed. Initially, I was very interested in breastfeeding and how the lack of breastfeeding affected Black babies and As I started that research, I ended up kind of stumbling into Black maternal health outcomes. And then I ended up, when I went back to get my PhD, I actually had my own experience with almost becoming a a statistic. So it was very easy for me to kind of transition into looking at maternal mortality and infant mortality. And since I had my own experience with it, I knew that I couldn't just let that go. I knew I needed to really dig into the work and become an advocate as well as an educator so that we could hopefully eliminate that huge gap in infant mortality and eliminate it across the, across the board, obviously. But, you know, just that there isn't such a huge disparity between groups. Thank you for sharing that. That story, that's your miscarriage story, right? That was actually my preeclampsia story. Oh boy. (laughs) I know, right? So I had preeclampsia with my first son and uh, that really got me into the research. And then after my second son, I had a miscarriage between him and my daughter. So I have a lot of stories. (laughs) Seems that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Could you please share your miscarriage story with us? Absolutely. So at this point, I have two children, healthy, you know, despite having that issue with the preeclampsia with my first son. 
And just life was happening. I was still in school. Uh, I was at home with my two young sons. And I say mysteriously, I turned up pregnant because we weren't actively trying. So obviously we know the ins and outs and how that happened, but we weren't trying. And I ended up, you know, determining that I was pregnant and my husband and I were very shocked. (laughs) And so we were like, well, you know, here we go. Okay. Baby number three. And, you know, we were just kind of trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? You know, do we have, we have to now get a bigger home? We have to, you know, make different arrangements for things. And I would say, gosh, it, it was a very, very early miscarriage. I think maybe two, I was maybe a week or so. I had missed up here for about a week or so. And then maybe a week or two after the, the positive test, I started to miscarry. And I knew it was different than, you know, unfortunately, people who want to be helpful will say things that they maybe don't know are insensitive. And someone was like, well, maybe it's a missed cycle. And while technically that could be true, this was not. This was a very early miscarriage. And so um, I had just scheduled a confirmation appointment and I just, I felt a little queasy. I felt a little weird. Woke up that morning and with the urge to use the restroom and I go to the restroom and my husband's getting ready for work and there's just bright red blood everywhere. And it was painful. And I just began to weep like whale. And even before I really understood what was going on, I knew that this was happening. And I think it was so strange to me because my knowledge of miscarriage was very limited. Even working and and researching in the maternal health space, I wasn't specifically researching losses of that kind. So I was not really aware that after having two children, you could even have a miscarriage. I just, I wasn't aware. And so I think the shock of it all and just the disbelief of what was happening was just so overwhelming in that moment. And then obviously everything that was happening to me physically, and it just completely threw my husband off. He was just like, oh my goodness. You know, he, he quickly, you know, took all of my, my, my night clothes and my underwear and just, you know, took them because I think I was in shock and I just kept staring at all the blood. And he was just like, okay, let me get this done. And he's a medical professional. So I think he kind of snapped into, you know, I got to fix this kind of mode. And then I was just crying, crying, crying. And he was like, it's going to be okay. You know, he hugged me. Unfortunately, he could not like there was something going on at work and he could not stay. So he had to go to work and, you know, I just tried to clean myself up. And I called to say, Hey, I know I have this confirmation appointment, but now something else has happened. And so unfortunately they could not see me that day. So they said, you know, just kind of keep an eye on how, how much blood you're losing and we'll try and get you in tomorrow. And that was devastating too, because I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm having this situation, this emergency, and literally no one can see me. No one is here. And I don't blame my husband, obviously, because he could not stay. But the feeling of being alone in that moment, in that terror, 
And then, you know, I have two little ones that I have to take care of because they don't, they don't know what's going on. It was just a very surreal out of body experience. So yeah. And that was in 2014. Why not go to the emergency room? I don't know. I think my first response was, well, I'm, again, you know, not knowing what's going on. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not dying. <laughs> you know, so I just, I think I didn't, I didn't even think I'm going to the emergency room. I didn't think it was an emergency. I assumed that I would just go to the doctor and that they would fit me in, you know, and that they would see what's going on. It just was not a first thought. And now looking back, it should have been, but it it just wasn't. And then I think, honestly, I was just like, well, you know, they told me to come in tomorrow. So I'll just come in tomorrow. What happened when you went in the next day? Now the next day, The next day, obviously, I had a lot of the cramping and things of that nature. So I really was uncomfortable. I was just, I was literally like a zombie. I couldn't get my thoughts together. I had asked a friend to come, you know, watch the kids. And I went in and I didn't see my, my regular doctor, but the physician that was there. And it was an odd experience because... She was very distant and I'm not sure if that is just maybe something that how she practices, if that's her bedside manner, but it was almost to the the point of being dismissive where, you know, like this, just, this is an everyday occurrence, right? It was almost as if she treated me like, why are you so hysterical? This is a normal process. And I couldn't understand. And I'm looking at my husband and I'm looking at her because her vocabulary, her tone, it was just very flat. And I didn't feel any empathy. The way the procedure actually happened, you know, I was concerned about bleeding everywhere, you know, like concerns that I probably should not have had, but because of how the the visit went, you know, they they didn't put down a you know, those little absorptive mats, mm-hmm. you know, so that, you know, yeah. you're leaking fluid or whatever. They didn't put anything down to really provide a barrier between me and the examination bed. So I'm thinking, do they believe me? Do they even think that I'm having a miscarriage? Do they really think that I'm just kind of blowing this out of proportion? And then, you know, she does the procedure. She doesn't say, hey, I'm going to touch you here. This may be a little uncomfortable. She's just like, open your legs. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what is going on right now? And even though I was really out of it, as far as my emotional state, I still recognized that there was a lack of empathy and that there was just a little bit of a rush to get me out. And that just broke my heart all the more. So it was not really a a great visit. Not that those types of visits are good anyway, but it was not a visit that would have lessened my fears anymore. Mm -hmm. I didn't get any education on, well, what's next? I just got to go home and take some Motrin. If you start saturating this amount of pads, go back to the, you know, go to the ER. And that was really it. So I was left with just nothing. So that was not a great visit. There was a lot that could have gone differently and probably should have gone differently. So yeah. And I went home, took my medication, agreed, and that was it. It's interesting that you say 
that her behavior was like, this is a part of life. Because I actually spoke to someone not too long ago who had a miscarriage and they said that was basically what the doctor told them. You know, Mm. it's not a big deal. This is the cycle of life. And she was devastated. (laughs) She'd actually been trying to have a child for a long time. And I just really felt like she was questioning, like, are you sure? Mm -hmm. Like, were you really pregnant? Like, that's how I felt. Mm -hmm. I felt like she was trying to kind of get at something. Yeah. And it's wild that other people experience the same thing because one of the the myths that I try to share when other women are talking about losses or even experiences, you know, with normal birth outcomes where they are just, they feel dismissed or they feel like maybe they're not a good patient or, you know what I mean? Like that always, it bothers me. It bothers me because these are, you know, the trained professionals. These are the ones who are supposed to help you through these situations. And to hear that that treatment is more common than not, that's why I advocate so much for empowering women to use their voices, even when it's uncomfortable. What inspired you to share your story? For one thing, I have a daughter now. So after my miscarriage, I ended up having a little girl almost a year later. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to be sure that by the time she was ready to have her own children, that the things that I experienced, she would not have to. That was one of the things. And the other reason was part of the research that I had been doing was, you know, seeing these statistics and seeing these numbers, I wanted to be sure that I could provide a voice for the women who felt voiceless and a way for the stories of other women who felt like their voices weren't heard to be told. And I don't necessarily feel like I'm the one that has to necessarily be out front or whatever, but I know that if somebody doesn't tell the stories, if somebody doesn't advocate and if somebody doesn't make it an issue, it will get swept under the rug. And now, fortunately, it is a national agenda now. And so many people are aware and so many people kind of know what's going on with this maternal health crisis. But 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. And it's a good thing that now people are talking about it. But now it's like, okay, we're finally getting this out in the open and we want people to have these conversations. But now change must follow those conversations. So those are my reasons. And I'm sure there's probably more, but those are the the biggest reasons why I felt like it was so important to share my story. And the other one I just thought about is when you tell your story, you empower someone else, you encourage someone else to share theirs so that they know that they're not alone, so that they know that they too can share their story and like a ripple effect, you know, someone else now will be encouraged after that. So those are my reasons. I love that. Those are all great reasons. Thank you. Tell us us about your preeclampsia. How did that one go? Well, let's talk about that. The preeclampsia story to this day is probably, I think when I tell the story, people are, their mouths are like wide open. Like they can't even believe that this story happened to someone in real life. It started off with just a general feeling of dread. I guess I would call it like something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I wasn't in pain. I wasn't 
really uncomfortable, but there was something, I was in tune with my body enough to know that something was off, but just not knowledgeable enough to know what it was. And so I want to say maybe a week or two, you know, after all those feelings and I kept telling my husband and he didn't know, he was like, well, are you hurting? Are you swollen? Are you, you know, what is it? Are you, something's going on. And I'm like, no, 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 no headaches, no blurry division. Um, I ended up going to a regular prenatal checkup and, you know, they take your vitals when you come in, you know, temperature, they check your urine, all those different things. And immediately the nurse was like, can you just turn over on your other side? And in my head, I was like, I knew something was wrong. And this is even before they told me what was going on. It was like, okay, God, you were preparing me for something. And so the doctor comes in and I really knew something was wrong then because honestly, all of my prenatal visits, I had to wait. Even after getting to the examination room, I had to wait to see the doctor. So when the doctor comes in within two to three seconds of you being in that room, something's not right. <laughs> so the doctor came in, said the same thing. Well, can I get you to switch on this side? Can I get you to, you know, do a cartwheel? Something. He's trying to get me to move my position. And so he keeps checking my blood pressure, keeps checking my blood pressure. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world could be wrong? But I knew something was up. And he says to me, I'm so sorry, your blood pressure is elevated and I really need to get you over to triage just to kind of see what's going on. You may have preeclampsia. And if you have preeclampsia, we have to live with this baby today. And I'm looking at him like, excuse me, what did you just say? And at this point, I am 36 weeks, maybe a couple of days into 36 weeks. So I still have a month left of pregnancy, like a whole entire month left of pregnancy. And I'm thinking to myself, this cannot be, this cannot be happening right now. And so unfortunately there were some missed opportunities there as well. The good thing is the, the office was on the backside of the hospital, but they allowed me to get into my car and drive around to the front of the hospital to go in. And, you know, they were like, we're going to tell the people you're coming. That was the first missed opportunity. They should not have let me get into that car and drive away. So anyway, I get to the front, you know, I'm calling my husband, calling my husband, poor guy. He was supposed to go to work the next day. So he's sleeping and he doesn't answer the phone. <laughs> he doesn't answer the phone. So I'm in the triage place and I'm just like, I cannot believe this, cannot believe this. Hook me up to all the machines. They're like, your blood pressure is going up, not down. So they admit me, I have to do all of these things quickly and make decisions that I was not prepared to make. They put me on the magnesium. The nurse starts to wrap my bed because she's like, if you have seizures, you know, we just want to make sure you don't hurt yourself. And my whole world has just completely turned upside down in a matter of minutes. I was not prepared to have that baby that day. We didn't have a crib. We didn't have a car seat. <laughs> we were not prepared. And not only was were we not prepared, I was not prepared physically to have this baby. I wasn't prepared emotionally. You know, we just, we thought we had more time. And I was so shocked because I'm thinking, well, I didn't have any signs that anything was going on. But there was that 
little something that said, hey, maybe your body is something's a little off. And so for anyone that's listening, I just want you to know that when you are in tune with your body, you know, pregnant or not, you you have to pay attention. You have to listen to that little voice or that little feeling that something's not right, that gut, that intuition. You will have some type of something that will let you know, maybe I should call somebody. Maybe I should, you know, check and see what's going on because it really could be the difference between life and death. And so I'm, I'm in this hospital room, you know, people are just buzzing all around. I had a few issues with lack of communication, dismissal of my pain. And then ultimately I ended up having to have an emergency C-section because the epidural, while it did not numb me, it did drop my blood pressure, but it made my baby's heart rate drop as well. So I ended up having this emergency C-section again. Just everything was not planned. Everything was not what I expected. And unfortunately, because again, those issues of not being listened to, I felt them cut me open. I felt them. that initial C-section incision was, I mean, a blood curdling scream throughout the entire hospital. But at that point, it was too late. Like they have to save my baby. Right. Or there, that is the hope that they will save my baby by this C-section. And uh, so I think at some point they were like, just knock her out, get this baby out and, you know, try to get both of them to a point where they're stable. So, you know, again, another opportunity for, you know, respectful care, for listening to the patient, for you know, not dismissing people's pain. It was such a stressful and traumatic experience. I I, I often tell people like, there has to be like some kind of eraser that happens once your child is born. Because especially for people who have traumatic first births, the fact that I actually have more children is a testimony. It's a testament to the fact that something happens there's like a supernatural erasing moment where you forget all the drama and you're like, oh, I would like to do this again. Uh, so, you know, I'm I'm grateful that both my son and I were at some point stable enough and healthy enough to go home. He will be 13 this year. Wow. And uh, I am grateful that I am here to tell the story. I'm grateful that you're here to tell the story too. Why did you think that driving around was a bad idea? Well, here's the thing. I wasn't aware how off my blood pressure was. And the issue with preeclampsia is things can get really bad, really fast. And in those moments where I drove just around the back of the hospital to the front of the hospital, I could have had a seizure. And no one would have had any account of where I was No one would have known that I was in my car and I could have died in the car on the way around to the front of the hospital. So that was a huge no-no for that hospital. (laughs) And, you know, we, we never pursued any legal action or whatever on that. But the moment as a patient, I was considered to be a high risk of, you know, death. You know, they should have said, hey, girl, I know your car is right here. It's going to be okay. We're going to wheel you from here to where you need to be. And that should have been a hospital procedure, point blank period. So 
in, in any event where the mother and the child are at risk, you don't tell them to get in the car and drive themselves somewhere else, even if it is around the corner to the front of the hospital. What would you say were the toughest parts of these experiences? I would say the emotional and mental toll that I experienced, that was the toughest part. You know, it, it almost felt like at some point I knew my body would recover, but my, my mind, my heart had a bit of a longer trip to take to recovery. And one of the things that we sometimes forget when we're talking about maternal mortality and maternal morbidity is the mental health part of these experiences. These are literally life and death experiences and the mental fallout of those experiences can sometimes be overlooked because we're focusing on the physical, you know, issues and the physical statistics of loss of life. But then when you have survivors, right, those survivors have to now also figure out how to navigate life after having this traumatic event. And I wasn't prepared for it. There was really no, no follow-up. The next time I saw a doctor was six weeks later, you know? I mean, and I have this preemie at home. I've had a major surgery, a traumatic surgery, and there was no one checking to see if I was mentally prepared for what was happening until six weeks later. So I, I think for me, that was the hardest part was just dealing with how to recover emotionally and and mentally from that experience, from both of those experiences. That's a fantastic observation. So what helped you through it? My husband was a huge part of that process. And, And one thing I want to illuminate here is that having a support system is critical. It's absolutely critical. And he was trying to help me and, I hope that he had somebody helping him because at the time I wasn't really a, I couldn't help support him because he was trying to help support me, but he was a huge help. Just reminding me that I'm okay, that I'm safe, that my baby is safe, that I'm okay. And even with the miscarriage, you know, with him being a health professional, he still reminded me that my body was good, that my body wasn't broken, that it was not my fault, that I would be okay, that at some point, if I wanted to, we could try again. You know, it was a very safe, encouraging, and gentle space for me to kind of recover. So that support system is is very huge. And then I journaled a lot. I'm a writer. I love stories. So one of the things that helped me was to just write. And it wasn't anything structured. It wasn't anything specific. Sometimes I would write about how I felt. Sometimes I would write about what I felt like I should have had and was disappointed that I didn't have. I wrote about what I felt was taken away from me. I read a lot. I read a lot of, you know, funny Things that would take my mind off of what I was experiencing and music, 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 music. Oh man, music helped when words could not. And that was something that would immediately help me change the atmosphere of what I felt, what I was working through. 
So a lot of music, a lot of writing, and and let's not forget the tears. <laughs> the tears help. Sometimes we want to just be so strong. We have to be strong for our babies. We have to be strong for our spouse. We have to be strong for everybody. And sometimes the tears are just it. That is the thing you need to do to cry, to heal. So there were a lot of those. So those are those are the things that helped me get through those very difficult experiences. And I'm still grateful. I still use a lot of those methods today. I still I still cry. I still write. I still listen to lots of music. And I still bug my husband to talk to my husband. That's such a great list. Crying, tears, music, husband. <laughs> what tips would you recommend to someone who is going through or has gone through a similar experience? Well, first, I would definitely recommend that they acknowledge that they are in a hard season. You know, nothing is more counterproductive than for you to pretend that everything is okay when it is not. Now, at some point, it will be okay. But in that moment, in that season, you have permission to say, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I expected. I'm hurt, disappointed, angry, numb. Allow yourself to sit in those feelings, to feel everything that you feel, and to acknowledge the season that you're in. And once you are able to say, this hurts, then you can start opening yourself up to what's next. And, and the other thing I would say is to express yourself, right? So now that you're like, okay, this is horrible, this is absolutely horrible, express yourself if you need to cry. If you need to talk to someone, if you need to get outside into nature and put your feet in the dirt or your hands in the dirt, grounding yourself, if you need to have music and meditate on the word. I'm a Christian. So one of the things that I love to do is to turn on a Bible app or, you know, some kind of app that will read the scriptures when I don't necessarily want to. So it's a way for me to still get that into my heart and to my mind without me. Sometimes you just want to lay there. Sometimes you don't want to pick up a Bible. Sometimes you don't want to pick up some encouraging message, but you can still hear it. You can still fill your space with it. So allowing yourself to sit into those emotions. And then when you feel ready, because here's the thing, your time frame is your time frame. Go at your own pace. You don't have to heal by the time you go back to see your doctor at six weeks or for someone who's experiencing a loss. You don't have to heal within a year of your loss or, you know, six months of your loss. Take whatever time you need to walk through your journey, to sit in those feelings. And sometimes triggers will come out of nowhere. Sometimes grief will just bubble up inside of you just because it's okay to sit into those feelings and say, you know what, this is my journey. This is what it looks like. And to give yourself permission to let it take as long as it takes, because no one can accurately tell you, well, this, you know, by this time it's going to be better or by this time it's going to be better. Sometimes your grief is so acute. Sometimes what you've experienced is so difficult that the grief is just heavy with you for a long, long time. And that is okay too. 
Sometimes the grief isn't as heavy, but sometimes it is. And if you are recognizing that maybe your grief is transforming into something else, don't feel that you can't go seek help for that. That's part of your process as well. When you start to lose interest in the things that you love, when you start to find yourself unable to engage in normal, regular, everyday activities, it's almost like a constant fog or constant dark cloud over your mood or over your environment. Like those are those are things are signs that your grief may be turning into depression or into something else. So while you're sitting in your feelings, allow yourself to evaluate, am I feeling, you know, normal, regular grief, or is it kind of turning into something else where I need some additional outside help to really help me get through this? You said something that reminded me of earlier in the conversation when you said, oh, you know, sometimes people are just trying to help. Bless those people who just always say the wrong thing. (laughs) What would you say then to people who want to be helpful? Relationship is the key word, right? Because maybe you have a good relationship with this person and your heart goes out to them and you really want to comfort them. You really want to be there for them. And you really want to say something because you love that person. I always found it a good practice to ask. It doesn't matter what the relationship, how can I show up for you in this season? Don't give them any, you know, phrases or how can I show up for you in this season? How can I be of help to you? How can I bless you in this season? What do you need? from me in this season. And sometimes they may not have answers to these questions right away. So if you don't get an answer, that means you don't do anything. That means you just sit there with them in silence. That means you just offer, hey, how are you today? I'm here for you. That's it. Because in our attempt to try and fix things and fix people, we do more harm than help. And our hearts are in the right place. You know, we just, we want to help. We want to help. But oftentimes we project our stuff on other people because we don't like to see our loved ones in pain. We don't like to see them hurting. So we just want to get them through it, right? We want to help them hurry up and not feel bad anymore. But part of people's emotional journey, part of grieving loss and grieving expectations of what you thought things were going to be is allowing people to do it in their own time and in their own way and without you trying to speed up their process. So if you can just humble yourself enough to ask the questions, most people will tell you what they want from you. Sometimes they'll be like, I don't, don't, you don't have to say anything, just be here. Or sometimes they'll say, I don't know what I need. But can you just be here? I don't know how I feel, but can you just sit here? So a lot of times we can remove those phrases and those platitudes by just asking how we can show up for those who are in the throes of grief at the time. I love that. Are there any myths and misconceptions around miscarriage that you think need to be dispelled? Oh, absolutely. The big one is it can happen at any time to anyone. In any season, you know, like I said before, I just kind of wasn't familiar with 
what miscarriage entailed and who could have a miscarriage because I've already had two children. Like I'm thinking to myself, this can't happen to me. But again, there you go. That's a myth. It can happen to you. It can happen to any birthing person at any point of their birthing journey or their reproductive journey. And one of the things I have unfortunately learned the hard way is that there are so many other people who have walked that journey as well, but they have felt too scared or too isolated to even mention it. So I remember when I first talked about the miscarriage, my inbox was just lit up like a Christmas tree, my text messages. And the biggest shock to me was that there were women that I considered myself very close to I had no idea that they had had miscarriages because it doesn't come up in everyday conversation, right? And even if you are really good friends with someone, you're not necessarily trying to rehash their trauma. So the conversations just don't really happen a lot. So sometimes you have no idea who has had a miscarriage and who hasn't. So telling your story and sharing your story is as individual as the person. and just recognizing that you're not the only one. That's the other myth. You're not the only one that has experienced it. And these were women in my direct sphere of influence. People that I had over my house for dinner, you know, people that I knew and loved and cared for that I had no idea had experienced it until I actually said something. And they were like, oh, sister, I understand. I've been there. And I'm like, You know, so just, you know, the myth that you're alone, the myth that you don't talk about it, because yes, let's let's talk about the things that hurt, you know, and the myth that it can't happen to you because of fill in the blank, whether you've had children, whether you haven't had children, it can happen to any birthing person. So those are some myths that hopefully that now listening to us having this conversation that people will be like, oh. My goodness. Well, let me, you know, find out a little more about this. And and here's the other thing. I want to encourage people. Knowledge is power. Now, please don't get on, you know, the good internet and, and WebMD and Google yourself down a rabbit hole, right? Like we don't want that. <laughs> but you know, we do want people who are considering becoming pregnant to just kind of do a very, very cursory, you know, dig on, you know, things that could, and this is a discussion that you absolutely want to have with your OBGYN or with, you know, a midwife, if you choose to have a midwife or a doula, these are conversations that you definitely want to have when you're discussing, you know, reproduction and your birthing plan or however you want to build your family, right? These are things that you want to discuss with the health professional because some people want to be aware of risk and some people may not necessarily want to know, but it's always a good idea to discuss what could happen and, you know, how you should deal with that if something like that should happen. Great advice. Do you have an example of when you advocated for yourself or someone else in the health system and got the outcome you desired? I do. I do. (laughs) One of the things that I learned from being too terrified to advocate for myself. And mind you, you know, I just want to put some perspective on this. Before I was pregnant with my first son, I had an advanced degree 
you know, great insurance, you know, decent income, good neighborhood. You know, I, I want to dispel the thought that negative birth outcomes only happen to certain people who live in certain communities with certain social economic status. You know, I want to clear that up right now. I had several of these experiences with what typically is thought of as protective factors, right? Protective factors being, you know, good education, good income, good insurance, all of those things ticked off all the boxes, but I still had these experiences, right? And so when it was my turn, when I had these experiences, all those things went out the window and I was too terrified to advocate for myself because I didn't want to be seen as a horrible patient. I didn't want to be seen as an angry black woman. I didn't want to be seen as someone who was disruptive. Those were the things that I felt like I carried with me in that hospital room because the first thing they saw was a a black face. So I didn't advocate for myself. But what I learned through not advocating for myself was to see someone else who feels the same way and Hmm. to notice and recognize that same type of mentality and to help others to do better for themselves. And so one time in specific, a sweet friend of mine um, had her, she was having baby number four. And again, you know, this is not her first rodeo, right? Again, same thing, very well educated, you know, all these things check off the list. She goes in, she has her baby and comes home, but starts to feel horrible. And, you know, the response was, well, you just had a baby. Mm. I just like baffling, completely baffling. And so I told her, I said, please go get a blood pressure cuff. She goes to get a blood pressure cuff. Her blood pressure is steadily rising, steadily rising. So I said, call your doctor immediately, see if they can get you in. They're like, oh, doesn't seem like it's extremely elevated. So just drink some water and put your feet up. So then I said, okay, are you, are you swelling? Are you starting to swell? Are you starting to have headaches? You know? And she's like, I just really don't feel good. So I said, okay, listen, go to the emergency room. She goes to the emergency room. They make her wait. And I said, tell them that you have been taking your blood pressure for almost 24 hours and it keeps going up. So it was bizarre to me that her own medical team, I, th- I mean, and this was, let me be clear. This was like a year and a half ago. Like it wasn't 10 years ago. This was a year ago. And so it just baffled me the treatment that she received. And she is also a black woman. And I just, I felt like they thought, oh, she's just being a little picky or she's just being a little, you know, whatever. And I said, girl, please go to the hospital. And she was so concerned because she was like, if I go to the hospital, you know, again, we're in the middle of COVID. She was concerned that she would not be able to bring her baby. And exactly the concern that she had came true. She went to the hospital. They were like, okay, we're going to admit you. Your blood pressure is going up. We think you have postpartum preeclampsia. And they were like, we'll do the COVID restrictions. You know, you can't bring your baby. Mind you, she just had the baby. She's nursing the baby, you know, and I'm just like, oh, this is a nightmare. But I pressed her. I was like, don't take no for an answer. Don't, don't allow them to send you home, you know? And so it was just a surreal moment for me because I remember 
not wanting to bother anybody and not wanting to be a nuisance or an angry black woman. I remember those feelings so vividly, but I knew that my friend's life was on the line. And if she did not get to the hospital and if she did not get someone to attend to her, that she could be a statistic that another statistic on top of all the statistics that already exist on how black women are mistreated and how their pain is dismissed and how they are dying by astronomical numbers. What was the end? Did she get to keep the baby with her in the hospital? She did not keep the baby. I was so sad. I was so sad. But, you know, I did tell her to ask for a pump so that she could pump, so that she could, you know, keep her milk supply up while she was in the hospital. Fortunately, they were able to get her onto some, you know, medication, things like that. So she got home. She went back home, I think, in like two or three days. But in that, I mean, that's a critical time to establish a bond, especially when you're nursing with your newborn. So that was rough, but she's here. Her baby is fine. She is fine. She is here. And that's what matters. So I'm I'm grateful that she even thought enough to ask me, well, girl, what should I do? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, listen, you got to tell these people. Because sometimes people just, they see you here but they don't see you here. They don't see you as a person. They don't see you as a human, which is sad, but that is why I fight. That is why I advocate. That is why I make as much noise as possible so that people will humanize and rehumanize the birthing experience for Black and Brown people. Amazing. If people could take one thing away from our conversation today, what do you think it should be? I would say trust yourself, trust your body, trust that gut feeling that you were created with to let you know when something isn't right. Trust it and don't allow yourself to be made small or belittled. Even in your most vulnerable moments, you are still the most powerful. And if you are afraid, ask someone for help. Don't feel like you have to do it on your own. Be all the things by yourself. If you need an advocate, ask for one. If you are scared, it's okay. Ask for someone to advocate in your stead. Because if you don't, we already know what happens when people can't advocate for themselves or when their voices are not heard. Now we are trying to change that so that we can see what happens when people are heard and believe and taken care of and treated with respect. So trust yourself, speak up for yourself. If you're scared, ask someone to help you and know that you are not alone. There is a wide, vast community of people who are fighting for you, who are advocating for you in spaces. Speaking about myself, sometimes I'm scared to show up in these spaces, but I know I have to do it. And that makes me more bold and more courageous even though sometimes I'm like on the inside. (laughs) So know that you're not alone. Know that somebody is fighting for you. Don't be afraid of the birthing experience. This is your human right. This is your human right to have a safe, happy, secure delivery and birth. And even when there are problems, because we know that we can't control every environment and every 
every scenario. And sometimes we do have losses that we just cannot explain. Even in those moments, know that there are people advocating for you and that there are people who are here to help. That's beautiful. Do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I I would say there's so much information out there about, you know, maternal outcomes, about lost maternal mental health. Please connect with any local agency that is doing the work for, for people who may not be directly impacted or influenced by this topic. How can you help? You can donate. You can give monthly. You can tell other people who maybe you know will benefit directly from the advocacy and the work that is being done in your community. Do your best to be an advocate and be an ally for those maybe who can't for themselves. And uh, eventually at some point, we will eliminate maternal mortality. I believe it. I want to see it in my lifetime. That's my goal. Well, thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe. I enjoyed hearing your story. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure being here today. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Dr. Art shared some great tips on advocacy, how to deal with grief, and how to support others who are grieving. If you would like help in feeling more confident in your healthcare interactions, please feel free to send me an email at info at goodhealthcafe.com. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.